0: It is once again my joy to open up the Word of God to you and minister to you from it. Will you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15, Acts 15, and this morning we will be in verses 36 through chapter 16 and verse 10. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Marks of Effective Missions. While you're turning to this text, may I just say that there is a tendency very often in Christian circles to skim over historical narrative. As if to say they did this, then they did that, and then they went here and they went there, ho-hum. Rather than really reading that narrative and meditating upon the doctrinal and practical truths that the Holy Spirit intended for us to discern. And may I remind you, especially as we approach the text this morning, that it is crucial in Bible study for us to know precisely what the Holy Spirit said and what He meant by what He said to the people of that day. Because whatever He said to those people, He means for us today as well. But our work does not end there. That's only the beginning. Once we understand the text, now we must apply it to our lives. We must conform our hearts and our minds to the word of God and let the spirit of God transform us evermore into the image of Christ through his word. Otherwise, when we come to a story such as this today, it's just another story. Now, today... We journey back once again to the first century, to the early days of the church, and I would encourage you to put yourselves in the mind and the body of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, his companion, his fellow soldier of the cross. And it's very important to do this so that we cast ourselves in their mindset and in the culture of that day, and even to begin to think, if you will, in terms of being a Jew of that day or even a pagan Gentile. Not only that, but to think as believers as well as the non-believers of that first century era. It's very important when we come to a text to remove ourselves from our own culture and think in that culture. And as we do, the transcendent truths of divine revelation will capture our hearts in the same way as it did those that lived 2,000 years ago. Now, the context is simply this. Paul and Barnabas are returning to Antioch with Judas and Silas after confronting the error of the Judaizers in a council at the Church of Jerusalem. They dealt with, as you will recall, the heresy of salvation by works And all of Jewish legalism that was being imposed upon the early church by Jewish believers as well as the non-Jew. And all of this has now been thoroughly refuted. And it's important for us to remember now that this was to preserve unity in the church between two very dissimilar cultures. And also to avoid needless offense here to the unsaved as well as the saved Jews. So the Gentile converts, as we have studied, have been given specific requirements as safeguards against reveling in unrestrained freedom that might wound the Jewish conscience. So Paul and Barnabas have returned now to Antioch with Judas and Silas to communicate these truths. And here's where we pick up our text for today. Acts 15, beginning in verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia And had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees, which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And they passed through Phrygian and Galatian region having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I have divided this text into four categories that I believe will help us glean that which God has intended for us. And each section emphasizes a crucial mark of effective missions. And, of course, this would be applicable to any and every kind of ministry enterprise, whether in a local church or in a foreign mission field. These are the priorities. So here we see the importance of four things. Number one, to edify the evangelized. Secondly, choose companions wisely. Thirdly, we must study the culture. And fourthly, we must yield to God's providence. And as we look at these, I would encourage each of you to ask the question, how does this apply to me in my ministry, in my church, and in my family? First of all, let's notice the importance here of edifying the evangelized. Verse 36, again, we read, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Dear friends, here Paul states the purpose and strategy of his second missionary journey. It was primarily one of edification more than evangelism. Now he's going back to teach the new converts, to ground them in sound doctrine. You will notice later in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, We are given even more specifics regarding their mission to edify. There we read now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees, which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Is it that precious? They're being strengthened in the faith. And as a result of that, they're increasing in number. There's a very important principle for us to glean here, and that is that edification will inevitably result in multiplication. And likewise, I might add that any Christian that is indifferent to evangelism is weak in doctrine, weak in the faith, weak in love, and weak in character. So the goal here of evangelism, as we learn, is to not only see people come to Christ in repentant faith, but to strengthen them in the faith. We should be committed to edifying new believers. Now, to be sure, discerning Christians are aware that we are living, living in days where we witness numerous unbiblical methods of evangelism that tend to dominate Modern evangelicalism, the wide gate, cheap grace, altar call type of manipulation that herds people down to a front of an auditorium, people that are often ruled by emotion. Then they repeat some prayer and they're told, welcome to the family of God and so on. And then you can look at most of these people a year later and you will see that there's no evidence that anything ever happened to them which reminds me of our Lord's parable of the seed and the sower in Matthew 13. You will recall the seed, some of the seed fell on rocky soil, and immediately these people received it with joy, but there was no firm root. It was only a temporary plant, the Lord tells us, and when affliction and persecution came along, they immediately fell away. But even where the true gospel is preached, And sinners are genuinely converted. I fear that there also exists yet another dereliction of duty in evangelical Christianity, and that is simply a failure to disciple new believers. In Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, you will recall Jesus gives a clear command in his commission, and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, not merely converts, but disciples. And then in verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Beloved, this is the responsibility of an evangelist. We must proclaim him, as Paul says in Colossians one twenty-eight admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, friends, I would submit to you that this is far more than merely having a large crusade in some great sports facility and then giving an altar call, having people come forward, repeat a prayer and then move on to the next city. And yes, I am aware that some evangelistic crusades will turn the discipleship over to churches in the area. And I think this is good. But the problem is, very often, that most of these churches, I believe, are so weak biblically that they can cause more harm than good. Because most of the people that are now discipling these new converts lack discernment. They lack depth. They in many cases, even lack of love for Christ. All you need to do is call some of the follow-up hotlines in some of these areas where these crusades have occurred, and you will find very quickly that if you get them off script, you will be witness to an astounding ignorance concerning basic Bible doctrine. And so the lack of maturity in most of The evangelical churches that would be a part of the follow-up discipleship of many evangelistic crusades is really wanting. And this, of course, can be proven as well by the kinds of books that most Christians buy in our Christian bookstores. The immaturity is absolutely astounding. Most of the books that we have out there, even in the bestseller table, are As shallow as water on a plate, while others promote blatant heresy. But I want you to notice here that Paul took it upon himself to fulfill this responsibility of discipleship. It was his joy. It was his passion, as we see in the text, to return and see how they are and to strengthen them in the faith. You see, he did not want to see them remain in spiritual infancy. Because God does not want us to remain in spiritual infancy. Beloved, we must also remember that there was great oppression upon those new Jewish converts as well as the Gentile converts. Remember now, for these Jews, they, they, were, they were being abused by their fellow Jews. They were being ridiculed. Many of them would have lost their family and their job. There was no laws to protect them. The Gentiles, likewise, would experience inconceivable prejudice and hatred, not to mention the immorality and the idol worship and the emperor worship that they lived in. So, again, think about how important it was for these people to be discipled, to be strengthened in the faith. There were a myriad of things to distract them and confuse them and shake their faith. I'm reminded of what Paul said later on in Acts 20 and verse 31 when he reflected upon his stay at Ephesus. He said, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Now, I know some will argue, well, you know, an evangelist just doesn't have time for that. He must win more people to Christ and let others do the follow up. Well, I would just humbly submit to you that's not the model we see in the New Testament. And I would also argue that 100 converts who have been well discipled and grounded in the word and who are mature in the Lord will lead far more people to Christ than 100,000 converts left to themselves. The saints were told in Ephesians 4:12 must be equipped for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And may I also remind you at this point of our Lord's ministry. And there we get so many models that can help us understand how to do ministry. But one model in particular that emerges from our Lord's ministry is simply this. Concentration. Equals multiplication. In other words, what he did is he went deep with a few rather than wide and shallow with many. Think about it. He took a handful of ordinary men and turned the world upside down. He poured his life into those men. And out of the twelve, primarily he dealt with three of them, Peter, James and John. And so here I'm moved by the fact that Paul loved these new believers as his spiritual children. And what father would not want to teach his children and help them grow into maturity? I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, (coughs) excuse me, verse 15. There we read, If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, Yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Then he went on to say, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy. Isn't that interesting? If you're going to send someone, send the best, send the brightest. I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So there we see how Paul saw himself as the father of these believers in Corinth, but he had also been the father, the spiritual father of Timothy. He had poured his life into Timothy, and now... Through Timothy, he is pouring his life into those in Corinth. Beloved, we must be as ardent in our zeal for tending to the spiritual welfare of new converts as we are for their knowledge of the truth in evangelism. Very, very important to remember this. And here we see the first important principle for effective missions, and that is edify the evangelized. So Paul discloses to Barnabas his plan to revisit the cities that they had previously ministered in their first missionary journey. And this leads us to the second mark of effective missions, and that is choose ministry companions wisely. Notice in verses 37 through 40. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Now, you will remember that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. And here we see that Barnabas wants him to accompany them, but Paul doesn't. And the reason why is because he abandoned them before at Perga and at Pamphylia. We read about that in Acts 13. In fact, in verse 13, it says he departed from them. Now, we're unsure why, but there we read that he departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. Perhaps it was because of the grueling nature of the long journey through the treacherous mountains uh, combined with the life-threatening dangers they would inevitably face in that region. You will recall learning that this was a very difficult region with terrible terrain, um, rivers that were very treacherous, robbers, uh, not to mention hostile Jews and so on. But whatever it was, Paul was tr- was just strongly against having John Mark come along with them. And he disapproved of his decision to depart from them and go back to Jerusalem. And obviously now he maintains that position and therefore he sees John Mark as disqualified. So this results in a sharp disagreement in verse 39. As a result of their dispute, there was a paroxysm between them. Um, paroxysmos in the original language we get our word paroxysm from that and that is a term that, that means an excitement of mind or a sudden outburst of emotion a fit of passion and I find it interesting here that there is no indication that this was true of both of them I would suspect that it was probably only of Barnabas but we don't know for sure Since Paul was an apostle, I believe that Barnabas should have submitted to him, but he didn't. And bottom line, what we see is that Paul lacked the confidence necessary to bring John Mark along. And I find it also interesting to reflect upon the fact that Barnabas was an encourager. He was the champion of the underdog. You will remember that evidenced by his courageous assistance of Paul or just after his conversion when He introduced Paul to the apostles and the other believers who were terrified of him. But a tender-hearted champion of the underdogs does not make a good general. And here we see Paul, in essence, disregarding Barnabas' position with respect to John Mark and they separate because of it. Now, no doubt Barnabas was also biased with some partiality for his cousin, that tends to be the case with family members. Perhaps he wanted an opportunity for Mark to atone for his sin and and uh, prove himself. But apparently it was a was a contentious altercation that resulted in a separation where they served in different spheres of ministry. I might also add It is good to know that Paul later speaks of Barnabas with sincere affection and even desires Mark to come to him, finding him to be useful in ministry. Now, I think it's important to to pause here for a moment and ask the question, why would Luke include these details? What would God have us learn from this dispute between Paul and Barnabas? Well, I believe there are eight principles that emerge that can be helpful. Number one, desertion in the heat of battle is a serious issue in ministry. I'm reminded of Proverbs 25, verse 19. There we read, like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in time of trouble. The text is literally saying that misplaced confidence can cause both the distraction of severe pain and falling headlong into disaster. Like a bad tooth. Anybody that's ever had a bad tooth knows that when you have a bad tooth, the whole world stops. All you can focus on is getting rid of that, rid of that excruciating pain. So he says like a bad tooth as well as an unsteady foot, literally a slipping foot. His confidence in a faithful, faithless man in time of trouble. So, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't place confidence in faithless people. Because if we do, that will be a distraction that can lead to severe pain as well as falling headlong into disaster. Beloved, may I simply remind you that spiritual warfare requires devoted comrades. Ministry is war and war requires warriors. Battle requires bravery. And men who run for cover at the first sign of conflict, men who seek peace at all costs, men who are ruled by the fear of man rather than the fear of God, men who desert you in a time of need are frankly cowards that can't be trusted And so we have to be very careful with that. So the first principle, I believe, that emerges here out of this issue with Paul and Barnabas and John Mark is that desertion in the heat of battle is a serious issue in ministry. A second principle is this. Godly men may differ, especially on matters of expediency and personal preference. This is inevitable, dear friends. Godly men are going to differ on certain things. But we must all guard ourselves, of course, against pride and passion. A third principle is simply wherever there is severe contention over secondary issues and there seems to be no remedy, we should part company in ministry but not in fellowship. Part company in ministry, not in fellowship, not in love toward one another. So often what happens, especially in churches and even in mission organizations, there is some contention. There seems to be no remedy. Most of the times it's over matters of personal preference. And before you know it, one man chooses his, his friends and begins to garner support against another man. And people choose sides. And before you know it, you have a church split. That is such a wicked thing. We are reminded by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians four, beginning at verse one, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That should be our heart. If we can't find remedy, part company. In ministry, but not in fellowship or love. A fourth principle is this. Not all disagreements in ministry require outside mediation. And I find it interesting here that they don't run and get a a group of other elders and hold some kind of a tribunal to try to figure out what to do. And I fear that in many churches and in many organizations, people are quick to run to others to bring resolution Now, it may be necessary if you don't have qualified people, qualified elders involved. But I think what we see here is that we need to leave men alone to resolve their differences before the Lord. And certainly if as a as a last resort in very rare and extreme situations, you can bring in somebody from the outside and have some mediation. But you want to be very careful not to be quick to run to that. That's not what Paul and Barnabas did. A fifth principle is simply choose only faithful, proven men with similar passions. It's the idea here of matching gifts with mission. I I think of Paul's words to Timothy later on in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. He said, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in other words, the doctrinal truths that you have heard, These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he went on to say something here that perhaps was stimulated in his mind from this incident with John Mark. Because he went on to tell Timothy to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. So that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So we learn here how important it is to choose only faithful, proven men with similar passions to tell them, look, you've got to make this choice. It's, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a war. You know that the price is high. And if you still want to come, then please come. And we must, therefore, dear friends, guard ourselves against appointing novices into positions of great responsibility. Again, we are reminded of this in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 10, in the qualification for a servant or a deacon. It says, let these also first be tested. And since that's a present tense verb, um, it, it means that there needs to be an ongoing evaluation of that man's character a sixth principle that emerges out of this separation from Paul and Barnabas over John Mark is not all failures in ministry are permanent. I find this very interesting here, and and we want to keep this in mind, even though there are going to be times where you have people that make mistakes and and maybe are immature or whatever, perhaps like John Mark in this case. You've got to remember, folks, that people change by the power of the spirit of God. They grow into maturity and we need to be willing to groom young men as well as young women in ministry. In fact, we know that later on, all of this gets resolved because we see John Mark once again working alongside Paul in Rome. We read about that in Colossians 410 and Philemon 24. And as I mentioned earlier, in Second Timothy 411 Paul described him as as a valued help. So obviously he matured and he was restored to useful ministry. Uh, This was evidenced uh, even in in the fact that Peter mentored him. We read in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter saying, My son Mark, in fact, Mark became Peter's interpreter uh, he even became the author of the gospel that bears his name. One of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, writing about A.D. 150, referred to the Gospel of Mark as "quote the memoirs of Peter." So, not all failures in ministry are permanent. A seventh principle: God causes all things to work together for good. Isn't this interesting? We see this played out here as Paul spoke to us in Romans 8, because ultimately what we discover is that Silas was a much better partner for Paul on this second journey than Barnabas. You see, unlike Barnabas, Silas appears to be a Roman citizen like Paul, a fact that would later bode very well in their case against the injustice of the leaders at Philippi that they would encounter. And. As a leader of the church of Jerusalem, Silas had great credibility in proclaiming salvation by grace alone and delivering those decrees to the Gentiles that were given to them there in Jerusalem to prevent them from abusing their freedom and offending the Jew. And we also know that he was a prophet, as we read in Acts 1532, and he was a uh, specially gifted um, teacher and seasoned theologian, and so he would have been the absolute perfect partner for Paul now to go back and edify these new converts. And an eighth principle. And that is, we need to avoid political favoritism and partiality in ministry. There's no place for that. Now, let me explain what I meant by this. You will remember that in Acts 12, John Mark's mother was Mary, who was a wealthy and faithful contributor to the new church. She was a very influential and godly woman. And you will remember that it was to Mary's house, John Mark's house, that Peter immediately fled to when he was released from prison. And there was a large gathering of believers there. Evidently, they were meeting in that church. She had servants. The servant girl went out to meet him and so forth. And, you know, it could have been real easy for Paul to say, well, okay, Barnabas, we'll let John Mark go, because after all, since his mother is Mary and all of this, then we need to, you know, the rest of the story. But he didn't do that. Beloved, men are to be affirmed into positions of spiritual leadership based solely upon the qualifications that we see set forth in the word of God. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 in particular. So as a result of their disagreement, they parted ways. And in verse 39, we read that Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And this leads us now to the actual revisiting of the churches in Paul's second missionary journey. It's now underway. And in verse 41, we read, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, which is, by the way, um, uh, the region where Paul's home would have been. And that was the region there of, of Tarsus, where Paul was from. And it says that they went to these regions, strengthening the churches. And again, may I underscore this without in-depth Bible teaching and discipleship, a church will never grow spiritually. It will never grow strong. Bible teaching is to the soul what nourishment is to the body. That's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we should long for the sincere milk of the word, the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, notice what happens in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, and he came also to Derby and to Lystra. Let's stop there for a moment. I want you to remember now that Lystra was the place where Paul healed the lame man. And they thought, oh, my goodness, Paul and Barnabas are gods. And they started to worship them. And all the people were so excited. And and then the other Jews came in and said, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what they're saying. They're saying that all that you believe is absolutely phony. They're saying that all that we believe is phony. And they all decided we need to take this guy out and stone him. And that's what they did. They went out and stoned him, left him for dead. Now, I find it interesting that Paul says, now we need to go back there. Well, praise God for men of faith, men of bravery. And there was something that drove him to go back there. Certainly it was the Spirit of God in him, but ultimately it was his love for these new converts who were going to be equally mistreated, both Jew and Gentile. And he had a concern for them that they would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and be strong. And so they go back and behold, it says, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. And here we're introduced to Timothy. It says he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Now, Folks, here is a remarkable scenario, especially tying into this whole principle of how important it is to choose wisely our ministry companions here in the providence of God. A young man named Timothy is now going to enter the scene. This is a young man that Paul had earlier led to Christ. And Paul, we're going to see, is going to choose him to accompany them on the rest of the journey. And this is going to lead us to yet a third mark of missions. Not only must we edify the evangelized and choose companions wisely, but thirdly, we need to study the culture. I want you to notice this. It's interesting what Luke tells us. Timothy says, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. By the way, we also know in 2 Timothy One five, Paul speaks about Timothy's, Timothy's mother, whose name was Eunice, and that she was a believer and also his grandmother, Lois. But it's interesting here that in this text in Acts 16, we we see that his mother is Jewish and it tells us, but his father was a Greek. And here, by the way, it's important to understand the grammar. This is in the imperfect tense rather than the perfect tense, which would indicate that his father was dead. So he's saying that the Timothy has a Jewish mother and a Greek or a Gentile father who is dead. And here, dear friends, we see God at work in a remarkable way. Because in his sweet providence, he is now going to supply Paul and Silas with a uniquely qualified missionary companion. Timothy would have been a young man in his late teens, maybe his early 20s. He would have been he would have had great credibility with both the Jews and the Gentiles in both cultures. And we know that he was a man uh, above reproach. It says um, th- that he was well spoken of by the brethren in Lystra and Iconium. And this is uh, one of the qualifications that we see in 1 Timothy 3, 2 being above reproach. This is crucial for uh, crucial qualification for a leader. And he also had to have been a brave man because, you know, that he had been there and saw all that went on with Paul when he was stoned. And also his family now is going to be willing to turn him loose, turn their beloved son loose and and go with 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 Paul and Silas. So this is a remarkable thing. And therefore, in verse three. We see that Paul wanted this man to go with him, by the way, now we can see a little bit better, can we not? Why John Mark was not the right choice. God had someone else in mind. But notice what Paul does in verse three, he says, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, this is a curious thing. Why on earth would he do that? I I thought this whole deal now has been salvation by grace, that that it's not of law. I mean, what's all this legalism here? Why, why, Why do you take him and circumcise him, Paul? I mean, you're preaching now that the old covenant of works has been abrogated by the new covenant of grace. What's going on here? Now, beloved, here's where a wise missionary is going to study the culture and be sensitive to it. You must understand that Timothy was not circumcised for salvation, but he was circumcised for expediency. You must understand and here's where we have to put ourselves into the Jewish and even the Gentile culture. You must understand that circumcision was extremely important to Jews because it indicated that a Hebrew was a son of the covenant. It represented the removal of impurity and thus it symbolized purification. In fact, The word uncircumcised and the word unclean are closely associated together in the Old Testament. We read, for example, in Isaiah 52, verse one. This is the the prophet speaking of the days of millennial blessing. uh, God speaking through him. He says, awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion, clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Now, catch this. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. So again, circumcision symbolized Judaism. It symbolized that you were a son of the covenant. It literally underscored the fact that you were now clean versus unclean like the Gentiles. It symbolized purification. So For a man, a Jewish man, to reject circumcision would be to reject his Jewish heritage and basically claim that I prefer to be a Gentile. Now, that's not an issue in our culture, but it was in theirs. It was a huge issue. It was, therefore, a profound stumbling block for someone to come along and try to minister to the Jews who was not circumcised. In fact, they would not even be allowed into the synagogues. So for the sake of practicality, for the sake of expediency, of usefulness, Paul circumcised him. Again, it had nothing to do with salvation, had nothing to do with legalism. A fascinating note, Paul did not circumcise Titus, as we read In Galatians chapter two and verse three, because he was uh, a Gentile through and through, he had no Jewish blood and had Paul done so, he would have indeed violated the decrees of the council of Jerusalem. He would have acquiesced to Jewish legalism and so on. So ultimately, what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, Timothy, you, you need to express your Christian faith as a Jew. You have a Jewish mother. Therefore, in the eyes of the Jews, you are a Jew. And being circumcised is not going to offend the Gentiles. But being uncircumcised will offend the Jews. And we have to minister to both. So a key principle that emerges here, dear friends, is effective missions requires a deep understanding and a knowledge of and even a sensitivity to the culture being evangelized. Paul later expressed this very thing in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19, which is a watershed passage on this very subject. There we read, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Then he went on to say, to those who are without the law, in other words, the Gentiles, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. You see, dear friends, Paul was constrained by love, not by law, nor by lawlessness. He knew the culture. He studied the cultures. He was sensitive to be very careful not to offend those that lacked understanding. I want to add a footnote here. This does not mean, especially where Paul says, I have become all things to all men, that I may be all that I may be all by all means, save some. This does not mean, as some try to suggest, that we become like the world in order to win it. I hear this text often taken out of context to support some of the things that you see in these seeker sensitive services. You see, friends, we don't capitulate to those aspects of a culture that are clearly offensive to God. You don't see that here. To put it real practically, we're not going to have a a rock band or a country band and dress like rock stars or, or have some kind of a Las Vegas floor show here at Calvary Bible Church in order to make spiritual cadavers feel comfortable when they come in here. We're just not going to do that. And people would say, well, wait a minute, you know, Paul said, I became all things to all men. Well, thats you're taking that way beyond what he is saying here. You see, anything that smacks of the kingdom of darkness is utterly reprehensible to a holy God. And likewise, it should be to us as well if we love him. It is our difference from the world that attracts people to Christ, not our similarity with it. And by the way, God doesn't need all that stuff anyway. I mean, the mindset is, boy, if we're going to ever win people to Christ, we're we're going to have to tone down the whole gospel deal. We're we're going to have to become like the world in order to win it. Otherwise, boy, God's just going to really get left out here. I mean, he's just not ever going to get get many people to believe in him. Well, but that's not what we see in Scripture. We see in Scripture, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Turn the gospel loose and watch what it will do. Remember, as Jesus said, it is the spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You don't need all that other stuff to somehow win people to Christ. By the way, if you want a big crowd, that's what you want. If you want to build a church, that's not what you want. There's a huge difference between a crowd and the church. So here's the principle. Paul is in essence saying without, without compromising the truth of the word of God or the sacredness of, of Christian character and worship, we must humble ourselves in every way possible to avoid offending those that we've been called to evangelize. We've got to study the culture. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul put it this way. Whether then you eat or drink. Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. By the way, those three groups cover all of humanity. Give no offense. And then he went on to say, just as also I I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. And then he closes out by saying, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So, while we must always endeavor not to offend those of another culture, our conduct must always be honoring to God. So, we edify the evangelized, we choose companions wisely, we study the culture, and finally we yield to God's providence. Notice in verse 6, they pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Isn't that fascinating? We we we're not told why, but obviously God had other plans. He redirects them. Very often God shuts one door. We don't know why. Many times it's a matter of timing. And by the way, we also know that later on there were churches established in that region. There was the church of Colossae that was established there. There were the the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The church at at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then in verse 7 it says, And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit, permit them. So once again, there's a divine redirection here. We don't know why. But it's interesting. They're not discouraged. They keep moving. They keep rejoicing. They keep serving the Lord. They know that the Lord is their shepherd. In verse 8, it says, in passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So again, they trusted in God's providence. They yielded to it. They just kept ministering and moving ahead and worshiping him. And finally, in verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, "Come over to Macedonia and help us." And then in verse ten, and we, when when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. The we there is interesting. Luke now joins the journey. Luke joins the team. We. Now sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Macedonia being up north of Greece. This is where Mickey and his family are from. And now they go into that region of the world to preach the gospel. And Luke is now with them. Dear friends, what an adventure. Isn't this an adventure? Can you imagine being a part of this? And let let me in closing, let me put it to you this way. You know what? If you're not serving Christ, you're missing out. That's all there is to it. If you're not serving Christ, you've got a boring life. Let, Let me tell you how I bet your life goes. It's kind of like this. You get up in the morning, you get cleaned up, you go to work or you do your thing around the house. You eat your meals and then you watch TV and then you go to bed. And then the next morning you do the same thing over again. And the next morning you do the same thing over again until the weekend comes. and You do a few things around the house, around the yard, go to church. And then the next week you do the same thing over again. And you do that for 50 years, have a few vacations, and then you die. Or then you retire. And you retire. What do you do when you retire? Well, you work a little bit, you eat a little bit, you do some chores, and you watch TV. And you get to play a little golf. Maybe for some of you it'll be a little shuffleboard. For some of you, it may be Scrabble, whatever it is. And then you watch a little TV. And that's mainly what most people do in our culture. They watch TV and then eventually they die. Beloved, won't you join the great battle for the truth? Get in the fray. Watch what God will do. There is nothing more exhilarating than watching God direct your life, seeing some people come to Christ, other people reject and hate you, but watch what God does in you. Watch people grow, watch families grow. What an incredible thing! What an incredible opportunity. And, beloved, you all have the resources, everything you need for life and godliness. We have the Word, we have the indwelling Spirit. Get involved in the adventure. May I challenge you to this end. And for those of you who still walk in darkness, for those of you who refuse God's gift of saving grace, I just plead with you this morning, once again, as a minister of the gospel. Won't you confess your sin? And won't you come running to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on Him and be saved? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these eternal truths. I pray that they will resonate in our hearts and that they will cause us to live lives of a great adventure as we go into the world and we preach the gospel and we make disciples of all men. And Lord, I pray that You will move upon the hearts of those that do not know and love You. I pray that today will be the day that they will experience the miracle of the new birth. I ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.